as it could get these days. Good afternoon, everybody. Today on Living Writers Archives, we go back to June 14th, 2018, to talk with Lillian Lee just before the launch of her debut novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant. Later this week, this Friday, June 24th, Lillian will join writer Lydia Conklin for the launch of their book, Rainbow Rainbow, at Page's Bookshop in Detroit. Hopefully, one future day, Lydia Conklin will come on Living Writers, too. And now, for the conversation from summer 2018 with Lillian Lee. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I am so, so happy to be here in the studio with Lillian Lee. Um, super thrilled about number one Chinese restaurant, Lillian's debut novel. Thank you, T. I'm oh. so excited to be here with you. <laughs> and and you, you're already, you know, obviously a friend of the show because you were here in February That's for the right. fundraiser. And now the book is out this month. It's now been launched with Henry Holt. Well, so it's officially out June 19th, so this Tuesday. And I'm going to be launching, uh, if anyone is local to Ann Arbor, I'm going to be launching at Literati Bookstore, where I also work as a bookseller on the 18th. So it's a little bit of a sneak peek. So anybody Ooh. who comes is going to be able to get the book uh, about a half day early. Oh, excellent. And here you read... Right, because you'll be doing a reading. Yes, yeah. and will you be having a conversation? Yeah, or Q and A, or well, you definitely know, a signing. I've ordered the cake, so there's going to be a cake, and I hope that everybody comes, if only to just eat the cake, because otherwise it's just going to end up in my stomach somehow. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, you know, I'm going to do a small reading, and then what I was hoping to do, because you know, I feel that booksellers are some of the most intelligent, most generous readers out there. A lot of my coworkers have had a chance to read the book already, and so I've been gathering questions actually from them. So, so we'll see. smart, <laughs> you're all there and halfway back, <laughs> my dear. <laughs> so we'll see if they ask me anything embarrassing. I, I'm just I'm very honest, and so if you ask me a direct question, I will answer it directly. So we'll see, you know, if they choose to be kind or if they choose to be a little bit more on the naughty side. But in any case, I think it'll be a lot of fun. 
Uh, and this also bodes well for this conversational hour of radio. <laughs> I probably right? shouldn't have told you that, yeah. <laughs> and, and so right before we came on air, Lillian and I were talking about how Lillian was here also for the fundraiser show and with George Cooper's debut of now the new theme song for mm-hmm. Living Writers. A shout out to George Cooper out there of Home George. So such a happy day. Got Stephanie behind the glass. I don't know. I think for there, I was like waiting for some sort of studio applause. Can we get some canned studio applause for future moments? Just what the show needs. Get that into the programming. So happy. I've been looking forward to this talk with Lillian and the upcoming launch at Literati. It just feels like what is like a summer moment. Like, you know, but let's get back to Lillian (laughs) and this exciting day. So we've got on the table with us. Number one, Chinese restaurant. Lillian's debut novel. And here's the bio. Lillian Lee received her MFA from the University of Michigan. Her work has been featured in Guernica, Granta, and Jezebel. She's from the DC metro area and lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. All right. So let's talk, Lillian. Let's talk. (laughs) So let's go back in the time machine. Little, little Lillian. Okay. Uh Uh (laughs) Wow, we went far back. (laughs) Okay, let's do the birth moment. Where did that happen? (laughs) Okay, so uh, T just found out maybe 10 minutes ago that I was actually born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My dad was getting his PhD in physics at the University of Michigan, and I was actually born in the same hospital where I now live about a 10-minute walk from. So that feels pretty special to me. Um, And, you know, I actually grew up my entire life thinking of Ann Arbor as a very... The word that comes to mind is exotic. It seemed like a very exotic place to me because I would, you know, so I grew up in Maryland. um, And I would talk to classmates about where I was born and I would mention, oh, Ann Arbor. And they would, you know, not necessarily know any other cities in Michigan. But when they heard Ann Arbor, they were just like, oh, I know that city. That like immediately would, you know, I'd see a glimmer of recognition. And so that made me think like, wow, this must be kind of like the New York City of the Midwest. I like didn't really have uh, a lot of information about Ann Arbor. I just knew that was where I took my first breaths and all my classmates seemed to know about it. So when I moved back for uh, graduate school, um, I definitely felt like, oh, narratively speaking, this is very satisfying to kind of come full circle (laughs) And my parents actually came to move me in, and they took me to kind of all their old haunts. So I saw their old sort of dorm. It looked pretty much the same. They took a picture in front of it. My mom tried to find the Chinese restaurant where she worked at. It is uh, no longer there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we just had a really nice time kind of revisiting this place where, you know, I have no memory, but it felt really special to come back. And it's been really special to have been here the past five years. And it must have been also lovely for your folks to, I don't know, have you somehow choosing to come back to Michigan as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's just so happened that my little brother uh, was going into Michigan for undergrad. So we came up together um, and I had four awesome years with him, you know, just down the street. 
Um, and he would just sort of break into my house all the time without telling me, <laughs> usually to leave like a gift, but it's still very freaky right. to have something appear in the middle of my living room and not know why. Um, so I miss him a lot. He's in New York now. Uh, but I think it was really fun for my entire family to come up and for my parents to feel like, hey, both our kids are in the same place. It's a place we know. We feel kind of safe knowing that they're in some ways kind of going through the same places that we have in our memories. And so, uh, yeah, I think definitely it was something that our entire family was really pleased by. Family plays such a huge role in oh, your yeah. debut novel. Oh, yeah. Really different family, mm-hmm. by the sounds of it. <laughs> the Hans seem different somehow, <laughs> even just hearing this little bit about yeah. your family. Um, so, but family is so primary mm-hmm. in this novel. When did you, what, like, as you started drafting the idea for this novel, did you have it when you came into the MFA program here, Lillian? Or was it something, this idea for the novel, was it something that you discovered while here or yeah, yeah. So let's talk about both this things is, this is gonna be kind of a, a long answer so please okay. like feel free to interrupt with more questions <laughs> uh, i don't want to just monologue at you but essentially um i happened to work at a chinese restaurant the summer before grad school so the summer before i came here um but you know, I had zero intention of writing about that experience while I was going through it and even afterwards. Um, I actually mainly just wanted a job that could get me some money for grad school. I was also going through a breakup at the time, and I did not want to mope around in my parents' house and give him the satisfaction. So I thought, I'm going to get me a job, and I'm going to forget all about this person, and I'm going to make bank. Um, and the thing is, is that, you know... Uh, my family didn't really understand, myself included, how to get a restaurant job. I didn't realize that I could just walk into an Applebee's and ask to speak to the manager and get kind of hired on the spot. So the route we took was my mom flipped through the classified section of the Chinese language newspaper that she reads, found you know a wanted ad hiring, and I just you know showed up to the restaurant and was hired on the spot. So a little bit of a roundabout way, which is why I ended up in a restaurant where I was definitely the anomaly. So essentially, I was the youngest person there by, I want to say, two, three decades. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone at this restaurant was in their 50s, 60s. Actually, a lot of them were in their 70s, sort of past the age of retirement. Well, that influences the characters in For the sure. story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was awesome. maybe one of the first times that I'd seen waiters who were, um, you know, older than in, than their 30s. I think I tended to see a lot of wait staff who were, you know, still, still like physically able to deal with that amount of labor. <laughs> well, well, when you were saying you were also getting over and through this breakup, I was like, you know, great restaurant life. You'll have an active nightlife. There'll be, <laughs> but then, then you say <laughs> your compatriots yeah, there. There were no beers be... after work. Right. Yeah, no, everybody just went straight home. Uh, <laughs> probably rubbed some Bengay on some joints, myself included. Um, I mean, you know, I'm joking around, but they were all way, way, way tougher um, than I was. Uh, and sort of the last thing that really set us apart was that you know, they'd all had decades of restaurant experience and I had zero. And that's all kind of a foreshadowing to say that I was really, really bad at this job. I spilled a beer on a customer the very first night. It's good to get it out of the way, (laughs) William. It's good. It's good. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I never really recovered from that. Um, So I lasted, you know, not even a month. 
really, really short period of time. And that embarrassed me. And, you know, all of those nights that I would come home, you know, pretty much just like weeping from like exhaustion and also just from like loneliness. And my poor mom would, you know, be very kind to me. And at the same time, it was clear that she was just like, man, I really raised a weakling of a daughter to not be able to like handle this kind of work. And I felt that too. You know, I felt like, you know, I come from really strong stock. Right. But uh, it turns out that with the very kind of privileged life that my parents were able to give me, you know, I couldn't really stand up to the physical and the emotional labor of working in a Chinese restaurant. And so, you know, I saw a kind of version of myself that I wasn't the happiest with. And so I wanted to just forget all about it. And luckily I was moving to Michigan. Right. So a really easy way to just put it behind me. And I also happened to be working on another book actually, while I was working at the restaurant. So truly not thinking about writing about that place. Uh, and it was a basically a book about two families, one Chinese, one white, and they just keep running into each other at the beach. Yeah, so that was that was the book that I thought was going to make my name. <laughs> and it would be a beach, it would be a summer pick, a beach read. Yeah, it was going to be kind of like a comedy of cultures. I don't even know what I was oh, thinking. Yeah. Maybe I just didn't want to write. I want to write about some place that I wanted to be to like kind of forget that I was maybe in this restaurant. So I came into Michigan thinking I was going to write that book, um, but it quickly became clear to me that I could not forget the experience I'd had at the restaurant. You know, I thought that once my feet and my knees and my fingers stopped hurting, that I could forget all about it. But actually, what continued was this kind of emotional ache, right? It was just the memory of how lonely and isolating it was and how, you know, being a Chinese waiter in a Chinese restaurant is to kind of be completely alienated from your own humanity, Right, is to spend six days a week, 12 hours a day, just serving people who look right past you. And I thought, you know, who could possibly last in an environment like that more than, you know, a month, right? Like, who could do that? But clearly, all my coworkers had, and they were not weeping messes. They were having a good enough time. You know, it was just a job. They weren't going home crying to their moms every night. And so I started to imagine, you know, you know, what years and decades in that kind of space would do to a person, right? How they might substitute a life within the restaurant, you know, to replace the one that they can't have in the outside world, right? Because that's what people do. And, you know, what might they do in order to have connection and uh, respect and love inside of a restaurant? And then what might they be willing to give up in their outside worlds in order to have that? So it was really through that kind of compulsive imagination that I ended up writing this novel. And and so when did you find yourself asking those questions? Like, was it when you were already here taking some classes or mm -hmm. writing some things out and the other novel at the beach felt a bit <laughs> like flat maybe or mm -hmm. so? Or mm -hmm. when did you know to ask those questions? I think that, you know, it's a little bit hard for my memory, but... If we track the timeline of the stories that I was turning in for workshop, actually the second story I turned in for my very first writing workshop with Michael Byers was hey, shout out to Michael shout out Byers, to Michael Byers um, was set in a Chinese restaurant, right? Because that was me seeing like, can I actually do this? You know, 
if I can't even write a short story in this setting with these voices, with these personalities, then I have no right to take on an entire novel. I had like a lot of insecurity and a lot of fear going forward because it felt like such a space where I was the outsider, even though I had been there for a couple of weeks or, you know, a restaurant that was similar to the kind that I was interested in writing about. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll pick up there. Today on the program, Lillian Lee is here. Number one Chinese restaurant out with Henry Holt next week. Next week. I'm Tietzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got Steph Behind the Glass. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, really glad that you did. Lillian Lee is here. Her debut novel, Out with Henry Holt, number one Chinese restaurant. Lillian, thanks for picking the songs for today's. Of course. <laughs> and so do you want to say a few words? About the about song that was Steely just, Dan. About <laughs> Steely Dan. Well, so the thing is, is that I didn't really discover that music existed until I was 12 years old. So pretty late. And before that, you know, I basically just listened to silence or classical music um, or, you know, those kind of weird mix CD that my parents had in their car. And the only song I remember was Careless Whisper by George Michael. <laughs> Still an amazing song. I should have picked that song that too. We could maybe step if you would. Your wish is our command, Lillian. So when you asked me to pick some songs for this segment, I froze and I really didn't know what to do because I just don't have a big vocabulary for music. But I happened to be working at Literati that day, and a there was a playlist, and this song came on, and I thought this that's perfect. You know, it's a little on the nose, but <laughs> that works for me. Um, and then. And also, you know, being in Ann Arbor means that a lot of my friends are always kind of coming and going. I say goodbye to a lot of people every year. Uh, so, you know, two of my friends who left last year to move to Colorado, Steely Dan was one of their favorite bands. And so that's, you know, just a way for me to remember them. Whenever oh. I hear the song, I think of them. And would this be Russell? Uh, no, no. Actually. Oh, okay. Just, well, sorry, but Russell, we miss you. We miss you. <laughs> Stephanie and I miss you. <laughs> but yeah, do you want to give a shout out to your friends? Oh, yeah, or, yeah, you know? absolutely. I miss you, Amanda, and I miss you, Paul, and I miss I miss Benny as well very, very much. That's their dog. Oh, <laughs> dogs are great. <laughs> In fact, um, my dog Dash loves number one Chinese restaurant. and you can good taste. Yes, he does. So he was even, he's camera shy, but he's like, Okay, you can put it on Instagram and Twitter <laughs> yeah. for Lillian. That's so interesting mm-hmm. that you were 12 when you found music. Yeah, 
truly. Um, and I believe it was Somewhere Only We Know by Keen, and it just kind of came on, and I thought, huh, that's like a new sound. Yeah, a sound, <laughs> a sound for me. When did you find writing? I found writing really young. I want to say I've always been just obsessed with stories. So my parents talk about how awful a child I was. Like, basically, baby from toddler was a nightmare. My dad wanted five kids. After he had me, he wanted zero kids. That's what he always said. Oh, no. Luckily, he decided to have my brother. Um, but the only thing that would calm me down, well, actually two things, they were uh, driving around and, and stories. And so I, you know, have distinct memories of being driven around and listening to Chinese recordings of Aesop's fables. You know, I think of Ronald McDonald tape that my parents had gotten in a Happy Meal. <laughs> just like any kind of story, if I, you know, could just follow along, it made me happy. And so I feel like when I started writing, it felt like it was such a natural extension of my love for stories that it's a little bit hard, again, for me to pin down when exactly I started thinking myself as, like, writing stories. But, the, but you were a kid. You yeah. were little. Yeah, yeah, definitely little. And I think the earliest that I can definitely pin it to would be fifth grade when I started writing fan fiction. Yeah, I wrote fan fiction. I love fan fiction. I love that I used to write it, and I miss it to this day. Uh, I co-wrote it with uh, my childhood best friend, Elizabeth, and we would gather on some playground and basically just have these sort of brainstorming sessions. We'd, like, walk up and down, like, the, the balance beam and just be like, well, what if, you know, like, McGonagall falls deeply in love with Snape because of, like, a love potion gone wrong? And I'm just like, yes, write that down. That's gold. <laughs> so that was basically how I came into into writing, um, I think, was through fan fiction. Oh, that, I love that story, <laughs> Okay, so let's move. Let's move up in time, sure. getting us back to you coming to the MFA program. Right. The second story you had for workshop, right? Yes. Right. But at that point, as you were talking about it earlier, mm -hmm. was that it seemed like you maybe already had an idea that this mm. could have legs. This could be mm. a novel, and you wanted to see if it could work or the yeah. voices could work or how the voices or the setting or the right exactly I just wanted to make sure because you know I was really kicking myself for only lasting barely a month and you know when I realized research that, I know I was like I, that was perfect research opportunity like why didn't I interview people why didn't I just take notes even um, and so a lot of it was like can I even write about the space in a you know believable way in a comfortable way because it's you know hard enough to write a novel when you're feeling insecure about like the little details of what's in the background. So I wrote this short story also because, you know, I had some questions rolling around in my head, you know, questions of like, what is family? Because it felt like, you know, a lot of restaurants, you know, outside of Chinese restaurants, I feel like do feel very familial because you're spending all of your time together in tight corners. It's hot, it's sweaty. Uh, everybody sucks. So you just kind of commiserate with each other. And that builds a really comradely familial bond. And, you know, that's, I think, true in all restaurants. And it was true in the restaurant where, where I worked. And so, you know, I thought, why, uh, especially if the restaurant is family owned, but then also employs people who are not, you know, blood related family. Right. That kind of complicates this idea of what is family and who is family. And so I wrote the short story to kind of explore that question. 
right? So what happens when this kind of uh, really close family feeling group of people, like what happens when that is splintered somehow? So that, you know, there are always seeds of what would end up being the novel's plot. Um, and in the short story, though, it was a much more kind of isolated, localized event that I wanted to write about to fit that kind of space. But I think that, you know, the thing that I've always had a lot of trouble with is plot. Right, and that might be partially through my fan fiction background, which is that the kind the plot's kind of like built in. I just have to write like an extension of what's already there. But also through fan fiction, I tend to be really character driven when I write. So if the characters feel real, then I just kind of follow them around and see what they're doing. So that's pretty much what I did for you know the second semester of my first year at Michigan. Was I just sort of wrote these characters walking around the restaurant, going through their normal routines, you know, having their general spats, you know, really small stuff. I thought I was writing a novel. I didn't realize that I was writing the prologue to a novel. And it was really a uh, another professor, Eileen Pollock, another shout out to yeah, Eileen, out to Eileen. who was really integral in helping me understand, you know, how even a novel becomes a novel. So she was the one who basically said, you know, uh, most novels are when, you know, that routine that every day is disrupted, right? And we're writing into that disruption, seeing what happens. And so that's when I realized that, you know, even though I wanted this book to take place in a restaurant, that something had to happen to the restaurant. And I think it's when that, you know, clicked in that I think the novel was pretty much like set up for going forward. This, I think, is a great time to give us an encapsulation of the novel. And then would you mind reading? No, yeah, not at all. Um, so the quick summary of Number One Chinese Restaurant is that uh, it takes place um, at the Beijing Duck House, which is an upscale Peking Duck restaurant outside D.C. And it looks at the family that owns it, the Hans, as well as their longtime employees. And what happens when, you know, one day they no longer have this structure that's been, you know, kind of giving a shape to their lives uh, when that structure suddenly disappears and they no longer have this place that has been both sustaining them and also kind of suffocating them, right? And so what do they do with this kind of newfound frightening freedom, all right, and this um, lack of knowledge of how to move forward? So uh, that's basically what the book is about. And so I'm going to be reading, I think, from chapter two. Um, so there's not too much that I have to set up, luckily. Uh, basically, the two characters that you have to know are Nan and Ajak. Currently, they are waiters at the Beijing Duck House, and in the present day, Nan is in her 50s, Ajak is in his 70s, and they're, you know, best friends. Uh, have been best friends for 30 years. Uh, and so, actually, where I'm going to be reading from is going to be from 30 years earlier, when they first meet at a struggling Chinese restaurant called the Mayflower. Uh, so this is just a section from, from that friendship. Love came slowly, as weaknesses in the body often do. At first, Nan merely looked forward to coming to work for a chance to chat with a good-humored man. Not many patronized the Mayflower, leaving the two to talk and graze on the wonton chips meant for the soups. She started making note of what brought him pleasure. Fresh apple pie from McDonald's, candy cherries from behind the bar, the sound of a wine cork popping. The list grew. What did Ajak yearn for? A winning horse, new work shoes, less rain, so that the fallen magnolia petals along his driveway might not rot so soon. Nan's memory became overstretched. 
Driving home one night, she nearly cried from frustration because she couldn't remember what Ajak had named as his favorite childhood candy. Finally, she pressed against the tender place she'd been ignoring and stood back, aghast but not surprised, to witness the crumbling edge of her reason. Her imagination began and ended with Ajak. He was a good man, but not strong. He liked drinking and candy and gambling. In a single plastic sleeve in his wallet, he kept a picture of his wife and a jumble of lucky number slips. Only a pair of faded eyes peeped out through the confetti. In her wallet, Nan carried just $20, which would last her the entire week. She hated waste, napping, and overeating. At home, she reused the same bowl and utensils for every meal, washing the set once, right before bed. So to fall in love with a man who threw away watermelon with pink meat still clinging to the rind, it was incomprehensible. But she could no longer ignore the heat and breeze of his passing body at work. The space between them when they stood side by side turned electric, raising the small hairs on her skin. One day he pushed his hands against the crown and base of her spine to correct her posture, and she went to stand in the walk-in freezer plunging her trembling hands into the bucket of frozen dumplings until her entire body shivered. For four months before the owner's children replaced the entire staff for the summer, Nan lived in a feverish state of alertness. She imagined living like this forever and felt no fear. Thanks, Lillian. Of course. Thanks for letting me read. (laughs) Anytime, friend. (laughs) So... Why did you pick this particular section of the story? Because it is going mm, back in mm-hmm. time. Um, yeah. So, you know, like I had said, I had spent months just sort of writing, writing, writing these characters, which meant a lot of pages that I immediately had to cut once I realized what the novel was going to be. But I I believe this is actually the earliest piece of writing that I did that ended up in the novel. So I think that I had always had Nan and Ajax's backstory in my mind. I had the beginning of their their friendship slash love story in mind. And so it's really dear to me just because I think it is kind of the, the earliest artifact of what would become the novel. It's also wonderful because in it, within it, you're talking about imagination, like someone's imagination mm-hmm. for another, mm-hmm. maybe their empathy, their connection. Mm-hmm. And then also where you ended the piece was on the idea of fear mm-hmm. and feeling no fear. Mm-hmm. So, so much is kind of wrapped up in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because this book really only takes place over actually probably like a month in summer, maybe two months in the summer, um, there wasn't a lot of space to write about, you know, the entire lives of these characters, right? Where they had grown up, how they had immigrated to the U.S. And so it was this passage where I could, you know, start to talk a little bit about the extreme terror and loneliness of being in a new country and what it's like to find somebody that is feels familiar to you and that makes you feel safe. And it really is very meaningful for Nan to, in that moment, feel no fear when she is in this completely new country as, you know, a 20-something-year-old, completely alone in the world. Lillian, we're going to take a short break. Yeah. We'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, number one Chinese restaurant is the novel on the table with us. Lillian Lee, the writer. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Between a love 
talking trash, making bets, lips wrapped around our cigarettes. She always thought she was too good to be a waitress. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Lillian Lee is here, her novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant. I'm T. Hetzel, and we've got Steph behind the glass. Um, it's exciting because Amanda Yuli and Frank Yuli are back. Um, they're going to be uh, doing a series of Living Writers shows um, and the first one, oh, this is, okay, is Hannah Pittard. And then we have Fatima Farheen Mirsa and then Julia Tertian. So here's like, that was a little preview of some upcoming guests. And I bet are all these, well, I know definitely Fatima Farheen Mirza yeah. is reading at Literati. Yep, she is. And she is Mike and Hillary's favorite book of the year so far, I'm pretty sure. That's They're high praise. incredibly excited. Well, maybe after number one Chinese restaurant. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they're super excited and they want everybody to just fill the seats because I think this is a really, really great book, a really big book that we're really excited about. And so she'll be on Living Writers Thursday, June 28th. Is that probably the day she'll be also at the shop too? That or, sounds about or you right. Can check the li- if listeners could listening out there, you could check the literati website page, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also check out Lillian Lee's website as well. Yes, I have a website. I designed it myself. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> it's just LillianLeeAuthor.com because LillianLee.com was taken. Um, and so I, I kind of vulture that site every once in a while just to see if it will go back up. But so so far right now, it's just LillianLeeAuthor.com. Um, and there's, yeah, there's some nice fun bonuses on there right now, especially for book clubs. There's a, I just made a book club section. Um, and I'm actually offering to Skype with any book club that that um, picks number one Chinese restaurant because I know, you know, it's a big deal to pick a hardcover. They're expensive. And so if, you know, any book club wants to do that, I would love and I'd be honored to Skype in and have an informal chat and just talk about the book, talk about writing, talk about Chinese food, whatever you like. Uh, so all that uh, information is available on my website right now. So book clubs could connect with you that way. Yes, exactly. That is, that is, uh, that's such an amazing offer. Uh, I've been told it's a very brave offer. <laughs> to, to just well, sort of a blank that check too. say I'll totally Skype anyone <laughs> right, right. if it's more than one person it makes a book club no just kidding. I don't know I, I don't mean to make this like something like biblical now um, right? anyway um, okay let's get back let's get back to talking about number one Chinese Absolutely. restaurant and maybe a little bit about your experience with because we've talked a little bit about next Monday's 
book launch mm-hmm. at Literati right. um, and some of the booksellers how there at Literati. Can you tell us a little bit more about the experience of, because you drafted the book, mm-hmm. let's see, thinking about, it started drafting it second semester mm-hmm. of your first year in the, the MFA program. Yeah. And then I managed to very luckily sell it at the very end of my Zell Fellowship. So it was very, very good timing. I don't think I'll ever get as good timing as that again. Well, I don't know. Knock on wood. I mean, <laughs> keep it rolling, right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, and so then, you know, I was hired at Literati actually um, around the same time that I was uh, thinking about, you know, putting the book out there, trying to sell the book, um, around the time that I think I had signed with my agent. And so in a lot of ways, Literati has always been there. And I'm so, so glad that it has because, you know, I, I'm friends with a lot of other debut writers and it's a really lonely and very, very scary uh, and very crazy-making experience to go through. You're kind of stuck in your own writer bubble a lot of times, and so the idea of people kind of coming into that bubble is very, very scary. But um, I feel so lucky that, you know, I was going through that experience while working the floor as a bookseller, and so that was amazing for two reasons. One is that, you know, going through the MFA program, or even just when you hang out with a lot of like-minded people, you tend to read a lot of the same things, tend to have a lot of the same opinions about those things. And it starts making at least me feel like, you know, there's one kind of reader, one kind of reaction to a book. And I'll just tell you that writers are not the the most generous readers. I think that there is, you know, because we're trying to read sometimes to, you know, help ourselves and our own understanding of what fiction is for us. And so there's a lot of, you know, more just thinking about like how a sentence is put together a lot of times, which is not, you know, I wouldn't recommend that as a way to read a book. I don't think that's really a fun reading experience. And so it was really working uh, at Literati and, you know, basically hand selling, recommending books to all kinds of customers, seeing regulars, seeing people who come back in telling me what they liked, why they liked it. And I just realized you know, there is no really such thing as good or bad taste. There's just taste and everybody has their personal taste. And, you know, I had such fun talking to everybody. I didn't, you know, our opinions didn't always match up, but I never cared because we got to just talk about the books that we were reading. So that was amazing because it has helped me realize that, you know, it's hard to picture an audience for this book that I didn't think anyone was going to read. But I can kind of slot in now a lot of those faces that I've seen at Literati, and that makes it so much more of a calming experience. And the other thing is that, you know, obviously, as I said earlier, booksellers are incredibly intelligent, generous, kind readers. And I was excited and also very nervous when I got my advanced reader copies in to hand them out to my coworkers to the point where I didn't even really want to suggest it because that always seemed a bit presumptuous like here read this book you know of mine but they were all you know kind of very excited to read it and uh, read it very quickly um, got back to me and then suddenly I was having discussions about people that had only been real to me you know talking about Nan talking about Ajak talking about who everyone's favorite character was and that was amazing and you know it really helped me access my excitement about the book because another weird thing that happens to writers I don't know why we just like being unhappy uh, we tend I, I just like have a hard time rereading this book you know, maybe it's because I've read it so many times, I'm too close to it, that, you know, I tend to just sort of like hate on anything that 
feels off to me. Um, and I don't know why this is a thing that happens to writers, but it's really helpful to get somebody who's reading it for the first time to talk to you about how they really love this sentence. They really love this moment. They really love this character. And I'm just like, yeah, at one point I did too, you know? And so that's just been the best part, really, of this entire long, weird journey has been working at Literati, being around my coworkers, and talking about books with the people of Ann Arbor. That's lovely. <laughs> That's like a little love note to Literati it there. Is. And, I really love it and there. And people who work there and people who go there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a great community place. It is. Thank goodness for Literati. Thank goodness. Yeah. And oh, and congratulations to Hillary and Mike with the new baby. Yes. Right? We're so, so excited. There's going to be a bookstore baby. <laughs> <laughs> and I have never held a baby before. So hopefully this will be my first time. Uh, be very careful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Like maybe not after saying that. <laughs> um, so like you mentioned about the characters and sort of loving them mm-hmm. in that time, and so that. But there's some really there's some difficult people, difficult mm-hmm. characters in this book. Definitely, but you do love them. I do, yes. and you do understand. You're like you're you're trying to ask. It seems like you're asking yourself questions about their lives Mm -hmm. or or what drives them Mm -hmm. as part of your process absolutely of even moving the story forward Mm -hmm. yeah i think that you know definitely a lot of the early feedback that i've gotten is that there are a lot of unlikable characters right characters that it's a little bit hard to understand or rather to root for like you know that's something that i hear a good amount what is when you first heard that was that surprising were you a bit taken back or were um, you like i don't think so because again having worked at literati i've talked to a lot of different kind of readers and i understand now that you know every book that you read stretches some muscle inside you And sometimes that's a muscle that you already have very limbered up, right? It's easy for you to do. And sometimes it's a muscle that you haven't really worked. um, And it's stiff and it hurts. And I've been on both sides of that reading experience. I've read books where I'm just like very, you know, I'm in it. Everything is making sense. There's no bit of discomfort. And then there are books where I'm just very, very uncomfortable. And, you know... Each time I feel like whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, that muscle is being worked. And so, you know, the way I think about it is that, you know, maybe for my book, because there are also a lot of readers who really like the characters, what I can maybe um, theorize is that maybe for the readers who are having a harder time liking the characters, that there is um, a little bit more stretching happening for them. And, you know, that ultimately is going to be productive. And then, you know, this is not the last book they're ever going to read. And this is... (laughs) (laughs) So, you know... One hopes. One hopes. One hopes. And so, you know, it doesn't really bother me too much when when there are readers who who call the characters unlikable. Because I, I feel that I have done my job in... Uh, understanding and communicating what, you know, their, the characters' backgrounds, the things that's happened in their lives, you know, the identities that they have in America, the work that they do, how that makes them act the way that they do. I feel like I have really thought through, you know, what motivates each person. And for me personally, I have an easier time forgiving and softening towards a person if I can see where they're coming from, because it means that I can see myself, if I had gone through that same life, those same struggles, I I would behave probably very similarly. You know, I think that is how I like to think of my characters. Jimmy Han seems like he's oh, yeah. 
like the anchor character yeah. in this, this novel because he's there at the beginning mm-hmm. and he's the one that gets the, the, we get the reader gets the last moment with Jimmy Hunt. Mm-hmm. Why was Jimmy the one that became mm. that character, that role for number one Chinese restaurant? So Jimmy is a really funny character because he is, I think, flat out um, everyone's least favorite character. Um, even the ones who really like him, you know, part of his charm is that he's the worst. You know, he is consistently <laughs> the worst. Um, and that kind of consistency, I think, grows on you. That's what I hope. He's actually, though, my favorite character. Or rather, maybe what's closer to the truth is he's the character that I loved the most. And I think the reason why is that, you know, I really loved his anger. I really loved that he, you know, thinks about and uses anger in a way that was surprising to me. Right, that anger is actually empowering to him. He feels in control, most in control when he's angriest. And honestly, I think that comes from one incident when I was working in the restaurant and I had done something wrong and my boss was just tearing me a new one and he was just scolding me and, you know, like kind of whisper yelling at me in front of all the customers and I looked into his eyes and I just saw a kind of calm in his eyes that I had never noticed before in him and i realized that that's not often what i see when people are angry usually when people are angry they they're a little bit like out of control they don't they don't yeah they don't like the feeling but i I, so i started to think like what would a character be like who actually feels comforted by anger who actually feels stronger when he's angry and it has control of his rage and so that's kind of where jimmy came from and you know i think that because I'm not someone who's necessarily quick to anger, at least not in a a sort of outsized way. Like, you can't really tell when I'm angry. I tend to get quiet. I tend to go inside myself. And I think that there was just something so fun and so freeing about having this character who is just going to be, just going to yell at somebody and just going to, like, tell someone off when they've done something that pisses him off. And I think there was a real freedom to that. But as a result, the first couple of drafts, I went a little bit hog wild and I just made him so 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 terrible and you know finally my editor who you know I trust so much and she has made this book what it is today she had to tell me to show Jimmy a little love and that's when I realized that you know I was spoiling him like he was a child I was just letting him get away with anything and I realized that in order to really show him love I had to make sure that the reader who's a stranger to him could love him, right? That was actually the best way to to love Jimmy. Um, so you know, I tried my hardest. We'll see if it worked. Um, but he's he's definitely the character I love the most. Oh, well, it seems like also getting to know Feng Fei, the, mm-hmm, his mother, mm-hmm. the character of well, the, his mother, his mother. You can kind of understand somewhere Jimmy's anger might be coming from mm-hmm. too, and where he might have inherited it from, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. We'll take a short break. We'll be back today on the program. Lillian Lee is here, number one Chinese restaurant on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today on the program, Lillian Lee is here. Number one Chinese restaurant debut novel out with Henry Holt. Coming out next week, you can get your coffee. Thanks for coming on the show so that we could talk about it. Give oh, everyone pleasure. sort of a Clearly, I like talking. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problem with talking. Lillian, I, I love it. I, I love hearing you talk and talking with you. That's all of it. So it was interesting. In the first quarter of the program, you mentioned like when you were a terrible child, like a baby, uh-huh. right? Yes. Or so um, one way to soothe you was driving around That's and right. listening to stories. That's right. And you mentioned mm-hmm. listening on tape to the Chinese version of Aesop's Fables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a Chinese narrator. It was in Chinese, but it was, you know, like just reading all, the, st- all the same stories. Yeah. We're so, also because one of the fables that stuck out to me in number one Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. was one that Feng Fei, who we're just talking about, Jimmy and Johnny's mother, told to them yes. to try and explain <laughs> something. <laughs> something about the world and how it works in her eyes. Yes. And something about what she wanted them to be mm-hmm. doing and understanding. And it features a donkey. Yes. Dancing on a barn. Well, why, why yeah, don't I, I hit it to you? quickly yeah. summarize. It. Um, I love this fable. I've always loved it. And, you know, originally this book was called The Donkey House for this reason. Um, but basically the parable goes, um, you know, one day a donkey hears its owner laughing and that's a bit of a surprise. So he walks outside and he sees that the reason the owner is laughing is because a little monkey has climbed its way up onto the roof of the house and is doing a little dance. And so the donkey decides, I'm going to get up on that roof, too. And so he gets up on the roof, starts dancing next to the monkey. But, you know, it's his hooves kind of break through the roof. So the owner kind of comes up, grabs him, drags him down and starts beating him. And the donkey asks his owner, you know, why did you laugh at the monkey, but not at me? And the owner says, because it is a monkey and you are a donkey. Right. So it's basically kind of, you know, the darker side of be yourself, which is don't be what you're not. Right. So, <laughs> which I appreciate um, the kind of realism of that. And and so, you know, Feng Fei tells this story to her, uh, her two sons in order to kind of tell them, you know, to, to understand that, you know, you might not have all of the strengths in the world. You might see that this person is charismatic and you're not charismatic and you might want to be like that person. But you should really look into what you are already strong at and take pride in that and use that to move through the world. So, you know, that was kind of the lesson that she had hoped to impart. But as I'm sure, you know, my parents will say, you know, your children never quite seem to get the lessons that you're trying to give them. So, of course, her sons do not uh, listen to her. And pretty much a lot of this book is, you know, especially with Jimmy's journey is sort of, you know, trying to do something and be something that isn't actually, you know, the most natural for him, you know, and, and why, why, why would you want to do something that that doesn't come naturally? So that, you know, the book asks a lot of questions about that, right? Because Jimmy's trying to start a compl- completely new restaurant. The glory. Uh, the, the glory, exactly. The Beijing glory. Um, and, you know, he wants to replace his father's old restaurant um, and to get out from underneath that shadow. And, you know, he's also under the shadow of his charismatic big brother, Johnny. Um, and, you know, so it's sort of what, what happens when you don't really understand yourself and you don't really, you know, you're not able to really look yourself in the mirror and accept all the things that you are. And so you've covered the other themes that are are running through here, parents, Mm -hmm. children Mm -hmm. and their parents, the themes of family Mm -hmm. and 
aging, we talked it. Well, we got to hear about Nan and Ajak mm-hmm. um, from their younger days, mm-hmm. but we know that in the present day, they're 50 and 70s. Right. And so this, a lot is happening as you, like, as you said, this takes place maybe in two months. Right. <laughs> Don't be deceived, everyone. Um, Lillian manages to roam far and wide (laughs) in, in number one Chinese restaurant. And this also connects. So I'm so interested in how this fable was also such a like a touchstone mm-hmm. for this novel. It was. And the idea of stories and the mother of uh, Feng Fei says at the end, towards the end, you are the stories people tell of you. Right. Right. Which isn't necessarily what other people believe mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of stories mm-hmm. and the exterior and maybe relating to the donkey again? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that at least when Feng Fei brings it up, she's sort of thinking about how you are what people perceive you to be, right? We are other people's public perceptions. And she's thinking about the story of success, the story of the American dream, right? That if you behave a certain way, if you can actually allow the outside world to believe that you are the quintessential success story, even if you don't look the part, even if you don't secretly act the part. And so she has this kind of understanding that, you know, in order to succeed in America, especially as a marginalized person, you kind of have to game the system a little bit. You have to understand that people are going to put these perceptions on you and you're going to have to play with that. So that's where she's coming from. And that's, you know, uh, maybe one of the, the the subterranean themes that are going through this novel. Um, But I think it's also this idea of, you know, accumulation of personal history, right? That what is so special about the Beijing Duck House is not the food it serves or the service it gives, but rather the fact that it's been around for 30 years and there have been people working there for 30 years, right? And that backbone of personal history is what makes that place feel so rich and, and I think brings back the customers, at least partially. And, you know, what what is personal history but the stories that we tell about each other? Um, and so it's also maybe looking at how a community, you know, grows itself and builds a kind of security, but also, you know, builds its own kind of cage by, you know, passing around the same stories about each other. Uh, so that's, that's maybe a little bit of something of what I was thinking about at the test, time. Test. And Hello? you mentioned you the anything? Beijing Duck House. That's, that's the father's original that's the, that's, restaurant. That's the father's and, restaurant. And, and duck is very very important there like mm-hmm. the the whole the nan also in the new restaurant becomes a carver yes and when i was reading also your your <laughs> connecting outside of the novel to your personal history your dad made a turkey that was like with the peaking of- <laughs> Yes, my dad made a Peking turkey for Thanksgiving. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to dad. Um, but so this this idea of the duck being so central, obviously Beijing Duck House, it's in the mm-hmm. name of the first restaurant mm-hmm. and it's like the, the flagship dish. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy wants to break away from that yeah. when he creates the, the glory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, 
when I think about Chinese food, or rather, when I think about other people thinking about Chinese food, it tends to be a kind of Americanized Chinese food, right? You tend to think about General Tso's chicken. You tend to think about takeout joints. But there are so many different kinds of Chinese cuisine. China is huge. Um, and so the cuisine coming out of it is going to be very varied. But it does seem like outside of Americanized Chinese food, the one thing that people really also understand coming from China is Peking duck. And that is seen as a much more upscale version of Chinese cuisine. So I really wanted to have this dish uh, kind of be in the center because it's a kind of desire of the family to, to be respectable, right? To be respected in America and to serve a dish from their culture that, you know, people are willing to pay 40 bucks for, basically. And so I think that was kind of what the duck represented to me. And also, you know, as you mentioned, Nan becomes a carver, and it is very painful to carve a duck when it is fresh out of the oven. Uh, and so that was another thing is just, you know, this very fancy thing, this very entertaining event uh, is actually very, very painful for the people who are, you know, doing the labor process. So that was kind of like all the things that maybe duck represented for me in this book. That's a lot on the duck. It's a lot on the duck. <laughs> <laughs> and on the donkey. I love it. <laughs> Lillian, it's been lovely talking with you today on the program. Thank you. So you'll have to come back again. I will. I'd be happy to. And, and tell us stories of the book tour. And, mm -hmm. and people can go to LillianLeeAuthor.com. Yes. Check out where you'll be. Yes. And also book clubs. Don't be shy. Take Lillian <laughs> up on this. This is my Skype offer. <laughs> Call now. While, while it lasts. Maybe we'll put that in there as well. And, and so thanks everyone for listening today. Looking forward to uh, being back with you all. But for now, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
WCPNFM and Arbor Archives. Original, air date July 2, 20,